Good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Glad you're out. And uh, praise the Lord for the ongoing Awana Youth Group Ministries as well. Let's have a word of prayer for all of us. Uh, Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name. Thank you for each one who's able to come out tonight and for all the kids in the the youth ministries. We pray for your blessing upon those tonight. Pray that you keep all the kids safe, but above all, for the Word of God to penetrate their hearts and lives. Just be with each one of the teachers, and and uh, may we uh, be used of you, useful uh, for your glory as uh, we build into one another's lives. So, Lord, uh, again, thank you for your Word, and uh, pray that you administer to our hearts as we study now, and, and again, thank you for the privilege to pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, note uh, our outline up here. We are right here still, chapter 1, uh, after the salutation. He's really con- commending this church is really kind of a model church. And we'll see more of that tonight. Really, the whole chapter is really kind of function- or focused on that after uh, he introduces uh, you know, himself and gives a salutation. The theme is the day of Christ, Christ coming for the church. That, you know, is an emphasis really in every chapter, as we will note even here tonight. And, uh, well, after he gives his greeting, as I say, uh, we come down to this, this key little verse here, uh, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Well, that's an interesting verse, because how do you know somebody is elected? Election is choice, uh, God's choice. H- how do you know? He says knowing, right? Do you know who the elect are? What's that? Well, yeah, right. That's true. But, you know, we know because of the fruits, right? At least we get a big hint. Uh, I mean, we can know and God ultimately knows all things. The wheat and the tares do grow together. And sometimes it's hard to know the wheat from the tares. That is the point of the parable there. But... uh, you know, there are certain people, you know, as we go along, there's a definite uh, confirmation in their lives that they are, are true believers. You really don't want to be in that category where Christians are walking around saying, well, I don't know, maybe. You know, and there's a lot of people in that category, frankly, where we say, I'm not sure. I I'm just don't know quite where they're really at. Uh, Paul wasn't saying that about these folks. He was quite confident that they were were saved. And so uh, note there's a context to this verse here, verse 4, when he says, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election. Uh, verse 3, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and, and patience of hope. So <clears throat> he saw faith, love, and hope in their lives in a very vibrant way. And then it goes on, as we saw last time in, in uh, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Life-changing power. The Holy Spirit was at work uh, as, as uh, they came to them, as the gospel came to them. And uh, he says, any much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Uh, you know, it's interesting, uh, this, this whole theme of uh, election, because really it's kind of the driving thing in this, in this chapter in the sense that the reason he's n- saying, I know that you're the elect, is because of what he sees in their lives. And the rest of the chapter is really kind of developing that. We don't know much about election other than the reality of it. Uh, You know, Dr. Whitcomb was really a key mentor of mine. And uh, him and Zeller say at one point, there is a problem whenever God's sovereignty is emphasized to the neglect of man's responsibility. And there's a problem wherever man's responsibility is emphasized to the neglect of God's sovereignty. Either can lead to serious error. The pendulum swings ridiculously. 
extreme, bypassing the truth which lieth between. <laughs> I kind of that's an old saying there that they're quoting, but uh, you know it, it is true. We, we, there's a lot of things on the God side of things we just don't fully comprehend, and uh, so we leave it with God. And uh, and yet at the same time uh, we see here that they responded in such a way that He says, "Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God." Uh, it's convincing that they really were. Uh, the elect, that they really were the saved. Okay, um, well, as we go on here, he's talking about uh, the evidence that he has seen in their lives, how they received the gospel and the evidence then that, uh, that, that he saw in their lives. How long did Paul spend here, by the way, at Thessalonica? Three weeks. Uh, I mean, formally, three weeks in the synagogue there, as we find in Acts chapter 17. He may have spent a little more time behind the scenes, but it was not a, a real long time, like when he goes to Corinth and spends, uh, you know, 18 months there. I mean, this is a very short time to have this kind of fruit. It's amazing what God did. And I think Paul was just praising God for what he has seen in terms of uh, what's happened in their lives. The Holy Spirit, like he says in verse 5, uh, that the gospel came not only in word only. It wasn't just a bunch of words, but there was, there was a, a movement of the Spirit uh, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Life-changing uh, power of the Holy Spirit was evident in their lives, which is always exciting uh, to see. Okay, uh, let's have somebody read verses 6 and 7 as he continues his thought here. He's made this very strong statement, knowing their election, and now he's still continuing to build on that as uh, he uh, speaks in verses 6 and 7. So who wants to, who wants to read those verses? Yeah, go ahead. Andrew. Okay, thank you. Uh, notice uh, this emphasis on human responsibility here too. Uh, you know, he says at the end of verse 5, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and you became followers of us and of the Lord. Boy, this is kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, he's putting a real emphasis on uh, human responsibility in terms of how they behave themselves and, and the character that these uh, Thessalonians saw in their lives and how that, that made an impact on them. And so we don't say, well, it was just the Holy Spirit. Didn't, the messenger didn't really matter. No, the messenger really did matter here. Uh, human responsibility does matter in terms of, you know, not only the response to the gospel, but also the, the messengers of the gospel. And there's a real emphasis here. Uh, you, verse, end of verse 5, as you know what kind of men we were, uh, and you became followers of us. Uh, real strong emphasis here. Uh, notice this, uh, you became followers. You became followers of us and the Lord. What's the word we commonly use to denote follower in the New Testament? Disciple, right. Go and make followers. Go and make disciples. A, a learning, believing follower. That, that's the idea of, of a disciple. And so they became followers. Uh, this is the, uh, Paul's recounting of their testimony. Um, I think a faith that doesn't follow is a bogus faith. It certainly uh, follows imperfectly. And you start as a baby, right? You don't have much knowledge. But I do think true faith follows. So Christ says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, right? I mean, that's the indicative of true sheep is that they follow the shepherd. These were followers, 
uh, and again, I think this is one reason he could speak with assurance that they were the elect, because they became followers. But notice he says here, of us. Uh, Paul was not ashamed to uh, say, follow me, right? Uh, sometimes people say, well, don't, don't, don't watch me. <laughs> There's a little problem with that. First uh, Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. I mean, he's saying, I'm kind of a pattern to follow here. Uh, you know, I think God's people should be able to say that, right? Uh, hey, I'm living the life. I'm a follower of Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Uh, and that's a good qualifier. Don't follow me just because, you know, if you, if you watch carefully, I don't care who you're looking at, you're going to find faults, right? Because none of us are perfect here. But we should be uh, those that have lives worth emulating. And, and Paul says we were those kind of people. Uh, we put the living God on display in our lives. And so the word communicated uh, through uh, changed lives really is powerful. When you're, when you're putting it on display in your own life, that's powerful in terms of affecting others. You became followers of us and of the Lord. And uh, this kind of goes together in his thinking. Uh, you know, it's interesting. He says you became followers of the Lord. The word Lord means master. And how do you know that uh, you know the Lord? Well, uh, how do you know he is your Lord? Well, you're a follower of him. And so he became, uh, uh, they became followers, he says, of the Lord, as, as well as, as them. Uh, now, um, then he goes on to say here, as it goes on in verse 6, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. That's an important qualifying phrase in terms of... Um, what it means to be a follower here. Um, this was not easy believism, right? This was costly following. Uh, this was going to involve some affliction. He says much affliction here, having received the word in much affliction. That's the context they received it in. They say, well, you know, it was a health and wealth and prosperity situation, so we just went for it. It's going to be all good. No, this is going to hurt. It's going to be some persecution you received the word in much affliction. Well, you know, when somebody receives the word in much affliction, that's really pretty telling as far as they're serious about uh, receiving Jesus Christ. But then he also has the qualifier, uh, with joy of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> with joy of the Holy Spirit. With much affliction, but also uh, with joy of the Holy Spirit. A supernatural joy. And it does seem these often go together. New American Standard in First Peter 4 uh, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's a special blessing. We see the joy of the Holy Spirit here that uh, goes with affliction. Um, somehow uh, God ministers to his people in a very special way, I think, in, in this context. Although you, you read people like uh, have been in tremendous persecution, it's not always easy. And you face special struggles, too. Don't want to romanticize it like, oh, man, if just have persecution, we'll, we'll just all know joy all the time. Yeah, there is that. But there's also uh, great other challenges as well. But the emphasis here was you became followers, and it was in the context, a difficult context, much affliction. But along with that affliction, there was great joy with joy of the Holy Spirit. Supernatural is the idea of the Holy Spirit. It was a supernatural thing. Okay, um, any thoughts there before we go on to verse 7? Yeah. Um, when you go to 1 Corinthians mm -hmm. 11, 1, yeah. you say imitators. 
Oh, here in uh, the uh, First Thessalonians text, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Probably the same Greek word too, right? Yeah, yes. uh, I would guess too, probably. Okay, yeah. That's true, and I think he will emphasize that as he goes on. In this verse, really, it's how they received it in that context, too. And it's kind of like, you know, they say what you win them with, you keep them with, in a sense. Uh, you know, it's kind of a spinoff as far as, hey, they were, they were saved in the context of persecution. And so when the persecution kept, they were continuing to expect this, maybe, and they, and they stayed faithful there. So, yep. Okay, very good. Let's read verse 7, then. Uh, so that you became examples. Uh, they became examples. They sta- this was a standout church. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia, these Roman provinces. Uh, and in my uh, New King James, it says, who believe. Um, became examples to, to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. They were, the model- they were a model church in many respects. Uh, uh, Macedonia and Achaia was a large area. Uh, and you look on a map... Uh, Here's where we're talking about here. Uh, you got Thessalonica right there. It's not a, you know, it was a good-sized town, 200,000 people. But, you know, throughout Macedonia and Achaia, I mean, this is a large area where, where this church is impacting. And that's what he's emphasizing. You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. I mean, I think uh, uh, the word of God was going forth in a powerful way, as we will see as we go on into the next verses here. Okay, any other thoughts there? Yeah. We do. Yes. Amen. And I think you can be a good example or a bad example, right? I mean, you can be almost be counterproductive, you know. But these, this was a, a, a model church, as I say, a good example. As far as he's really like, praise the Lord for how this, how you responded and how this, you became an example. Yeah. Amen. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, you know, brother, and that's that's a no. Well, well, yeah, and I don't know that anybody has a definitive answer, but it's true. Uh, You know, we know it's the grace of God that brings us, and and yet, you know, it is it is interesting. You say, well, did the grace of God fail with these uh, these over here? No, Uh, this is where that human responsibility does come into play here, and um, there is accountability. Uh, You know, we are stewards of the grace of God, and so um, yeah. Uh, 
And yet at the same time, on the flip side of what I'm just saying, he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He disciplines all of his children to build holiness. You know, so you, you got all of that in the equation. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what, brother? I think if we saw clearly, we would be, you know? We, we'd get distracted, right? So, yeah, amen. Very true. Okay, uh, let's have somebody read verse 8. Verse 8, who wants to read that? Yeah, Amy? Okay, I don't know that you get a higher commendation than this from the Apostle Paul, right, as a church. I mean, he's saying, you guys are doing it right. You are an example uh, in this whole area where uh, we would think that we need to have a gospel witness to reach out. You've done it. I mean, this is, you know, he's not the Lord, right? He's just the Apostle Paul, but it's almost like well done, (laughs) you know. Uh, For from you, uh, the word of the Lord, uh, which is another way of saying the gospel. And there's a real emphasis on lordship and on God here in this whole uh, surrounding context. Uh, The word of the Lord has sounded forth, literally blasted forth. I mean, it went forth with power from this this church here. Uh, They were not ashamed. They were aggressive in their evangelism, it would seem. And this whole area just blasted out there. In these large areas of these Roman provinces. For, uh, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, uh, but also in every place. Uh, so uh, the whole surrounding area was impacted by their witness. Uh, let's see here. In the book of Revelation, uh, of the seven churches addressed, only two are not rebuked by Christ. So five out of the seven really have a... a stern rebuke. Uh, The two that are not rebuked, they are the church at Smyrna, which was under persecution, and the evangelistic church at Philadelphia. The church at Thessalonica was characterized by both persecution and evangelism. I often say, you want persecution? You want evangelism? (laughs) You want to evangelize? I mean, these are the two churches that weren't rebuked. It's interesting here, uh, this is a church that's under persecution, and yet they're doing great evangelism. We say, well, because of persecution, we're going to pull back. They didn't, right? They didn't. In fact, the word of the Lord, he says, has sounded forth. Uh, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, yeah, these two surrounding Roman provinces, but also in every place. And he says, your faith toward God has gone out. Uh, this is descriptive here of their, of their active faith. <clears throat> your faith toward God has gone out. Now, it's interesting. You know, we talked about the word of the Lord in, in the first part of the verse, and now he talks about your faith toward God. Um, that's kind of interesting because uh, when we invite people to come to faith, who are we asking them to put their faith in? Well, the Lord. And, and, and we're, we're, the gospel, you know, we're specifically talking about Jesus, you know, in there. Put your faith in Jesus. Well, here he's emphasizing God. And, of course, uh, God the Father, Jesus, to put your faith in one is to put your faith in the other. But uh, there's a real emphasis on God here, as I say. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we need not to say anything. Paul says, I don't, we don't need to evangelize this area. You guys have done it. We don't need to say anything. Uh, it's been done. 
All right, any thoughts there before we go on to verses 9 and 10? Anyone? Okay, let's have somebody read verses 9 and 10. Who wants to read that for us? Yeah, Vince? Yeah, 9 and 10. Okay, so he's continuing to describe their response to the gospel here. And he says, uh, you know, the fruit, what, what, the fruit that they've seen there, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Um, again, he's describing the nature of, of their uh, conversion experience, which is why I think he says back in verse 4, knowing, beloved brethren, your election. Uh, he's very convinced because of the fruits that ha- he has seen. Notice uh, he talks about this, describing uh, how what happened when they showed up there. It's very fruitful, uh, how you turn to God from idols. Uh, the word uh, turned uh, is really a form of the word co- uh, commonly translated as conversion. Convert, convert or conversion means to turn. And... Uh, this is, this is what they did. They turned to God. Um, when we think about uh, turning, uh, there's a couple of words that, that enter in here. On the one side of the coin, we've got repentance, which means to have a change of mind. On the other side of, of the coin, uh, we got the idea of turning. And so I think you put it all together. Uh, conversion involves a change of mind that results in turning. And, and that's what happened here uh, to them. Uh, They turned uh, to God from idols. Uh, Note that. God is the focal point, but they they turned to God from idols. Uh, Notice uh, my overhead here. Many people have an empty faith because there's been no true repentance. There's been no true turning. Uh, Thus, there is no genuine conversion. The people simply makes a profession, continues on as they were before. Uh, The turning Paul is describing involved real life change. That's for sure. Conversion marks a a turning point. Uh, That was certainly true in their lives. uh, uh, How you turned to God from idols. And uh, note again, uh, a real emphasis here on on lordship. They turned to God. It's like they had other gods, but this is really an exchange of who's going to be your God. They are now turning to the true God as he says. And uh, so note in verse 8, we had the word of the Lord, and then also uh, your uh, faith uh, toward God. And here in verse 9, turn to God. And then at the end of the verse, the living and the true God, there's a, there's a tremendous emphasis on their whole attitude toward, towards God changed at this time. And that's consistent with what Paul preaches, right? Acts 20, Testifying to Jews, also to Greeks, so he's consistent across the board. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there's a change of, a change of mind in, re, in regards to God. I like to say repentance is saying, God, I'm wrong, you're right. Yeah. Well... Certainly, we always want to pray 
you know, uh, pray for all men, as Paul says in 1 Timothy. And uh, then I think we, we want to be a winsome witness as we have opportunity. We're, we're constantly wanting to speak truth into their lives. And uh, yet, ultimately, at the end of the day, we can't do it for them, right? We can't make it happen. So uh, we are, we really, you know, a good prayer, I think, is verse 5, uh, where he says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. Uh, we are praying for uh, the Spirit to work. As Paul said to the Corinthians, uh, that his, his message came in, in power and demonstration of the Spirit. We are really dependent on the Holy Spirit to, to get a hold of people. And, uh, you know, sometimes you, you, that doesn't happen. You know, you say, well, Jesus had 12 disciples. One was a Judas. What happened to him? Jesus failed? No. <laughs> You know, uh, why did Judas not respond? Well, I know it's all on him, you know. That's his, that's his responsibility before God. Um, God has made us with, you know, a will. And, and we have choice. And how that enters in, you know, it's not, like I say, I don't buy the zap theology where God just zaps people. Uh, no, there, there is human responsibility in the mix. So as to the why... That's a great question. There's probably a lot of things that enter in, but I think it does come back to there is a judgment day and people are going to have to give an account for what they did with Jesus Christ. So, good question, though. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, repentance means to have a change of mind. You know, and we, we talk about change of heart because mind and heart are often used interchangeably in the New Testament scriptures. So to change, have a change of mind, a change of heart. Uh, but then I think that demonstrates itself in there's a turning. If there's no turning, there's been no real change of mind. Right. Absolutely. Right. Oh, exactly. Amen. Yeah. The, the, actually, it's bogus. I mean, you haven't really changed your mind fundamentally. And uh, like I say, it's, the Bible says it's with the heart that one believes, you know, under righteousness. So I think, you know, we really are, are describing a change of mind that is a change of heart. Uh, that relates to the will, uh, yeah, it, uh, the affections, your your whole disposition towards the truth is is changed in that whole process. But it's it's a it's it's a work of the Holy Spirit too. It came in the, the power of the Spirit, you know, not in word only, but the the Spirit was at work there. So I always think about you know that last invitation in the Bible where the Spirit and the Bride say come. The Spirit is working. The Bride of Christ is saying, come. We're both saying, come. We're giving the outward invitation. The Spirit's working in the heart. So, somehow there's, you know, mystery. And yet, as Paul says, I have planted a polished water, but God gave the increase. It's God who does it. And yet he uses us in that whole process. There's a lots of <clears throat> interesting connections in that whole process. Yeah. Right. And God wouldn't need to use prayer, right? But he does. He uses prayer. He works through us. So, okay. Uh, so, I did, Amy, did you have your hand up? Uh, I just had a quick observation. You were yeah. talking about how did they know, how did Paul know their 
That's excellent. That's excellent observation. I'm working with a guy right now, and he intellectually knows a lot. And I said, I said to my wife recently, one of the evidences to me that he has actually crossed over would be when he has a real appetite for the word. And uh, so, you know, hopefully I'm being a good example like you're talking about here. But uh, I'm really waiting for him to where he'll interact with the word and have an appetite for the word. You know, love the word. So, yeah. Yeah. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I think there's, you know, he's talking about the uh, Jewish haters. You know, th- there were those, that's why he had to leave Thessalonica, because of the persecution from the Jews there. And so I think when he's saying these were more noble, the, the Jews, I think he's talking largely to Gentile believers here. And uh, as we will get into it here, um, one of these verses here, what is it? Verse, uh, um, yeah, verse 9. We're just getting there. How you turn to God from idols. That, that would almost indicate we're talking Gentile converts because the Jews didn't really have idols per se like this. So the, the Jews, though, were not very receptive, it wouldn't seem, at, at Thessalonica. So when he gets into Acts chapter 17, I think he's, those Jews were, you know, at, at Thessalonica were not receptive. But I think these, the church was. Yeah. Right. But I'm saying they responded. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I think that's that's the the contextual emphasis there. I think. Yeah. Right. Very good. Okay. Uh, notice he continues on here. Um, how uh, you turn to God uh, from idols, and again, uh, so they they had an exchange of gods here. Um, they had been worshiping idols, and now they turned uh, to God. And, the, and the, in terms of idols, uh, what are idols? Well, Paul says they're nothing <laughs> in 1 Corinthians 8. On the other hand, he does say in 1 Corinthians 10 that there is demonic activity behind them. So, you know, they're not real gods. They're false gods. They're not true gods. But there is demonic activity behind these idols. And so uh, they turn to God from idols. And again, this would be kind of a hint, you know, as far as formal idolatry, uh, the Jews after the Babylonian captivity never fell into formal idolatry again. So this would be an indication that we're probably talking largely Gentile response here at Thessalonica. Uh, And notice uh, he's not done yet uh, to serve the living and true God. This was no idol turning 
Pun intended. Did you catch this? <laughs> I just had to do it. Anyway, uh, they had real life change. Uh, they turned to God to serve him, to serve him. Uh, this involved radical change. Um, got a quote here. By the way, the quote goes along with this idea where the word serve here is a uh, takeoff of the word doulos, which literally means slave. So the idea here to, to serve means to serve as a slave. And MacArthur, in his book, Slave, uh, talks about, in addition to the name Christian, the Bible uses a host of other terms to identify the followers of Jesus. Yet the Bible uses one metaphor more frequently than any of these. It's a word picture you might not expect, but it is absolutely critical for understanding what it means to follow Jesus. It's the image of a slave. Time and time again, throughout the pages of Scripture, believers are referred to as slaves of God and slaves of Christ. To be a Christian was to be a slave of Christ. That's the word he uses here. Uh, they turned to God from idols to become slaves, to become slaves of the living and true God, uh, to serve as his slaves. You know, it's interesting um, how Christ says here in Matthew 4.10, uh, Jesus said, and of course, in the context is the devil's trying to tempt him, but Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And so, you know, the expectation is that if you are a true follower, you're going to serve this God. I, I, to worship God is to serve him. And, uh, you know, Jesus said to that Samaritan woman, uh, God's seeking for true worshipers who will worship him. And uh, that's what they do with idols. They worship them. And so they turn to God, the true God, from idols. They exchange gods. They exchange the worship of idols uh, to uh, serve the living and true God. Living and true God. Uh, idols are, are dead, right? They have no life in them, in other words. Uh, and what can idols do for you? Well, they can damn your soul. Other than that, they really can't do anything for you. Uh, idols are false. Uh, it's all about deception. Uh, Psalm 115 is talking about idols. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Ears, but they do not, eyes that they, they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Uh, noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Uh, feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their, their throat. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. Obviously, he is saying all the way through here, they can't do anything, right? Idols don't do anything. What do you suppose it means here when it says, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. We think, especially at last, you know, he's talking about those who make them are like them. In what sense? And so is everyone who trusts in them. They too are, are like them. What, what is the emphasis being made here? Yeah, without any power, right? You can't, they can't do anything and, and you have no power. If you're trusting that, you're in a, you're in a position of helpless, useless uh, no power whatsoever. And so, praise the Lord, in contrast to that, we have the living and true God. I love this title for God, the living and true God. It's, it's one of my favorite titles for God. He's alive, and he's true. He's not, he's not a deceptive thing like idols are. He's the living and the true God. Okay, anyone else? Any other thoughts there?
Yeah. Right. Uh huh. Amen. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, you're going to serve somebody or something. What's it going to be? Who's your God going to be? Who's your master going to be? Yep. That's a good point. Amen. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I think he's coming very close. Yeah. Uh, the, the point I wanted to make, um, when you talk about idols and the demonic activity behind them, yeah. I think that only goes to emphasize the miracle of conversion, mm-hmm. that how hope, and emphasizes how hopeless yeah. we are in our state of sin, mm-hmm. that there is nothing we can do apart from the miracle of God intervening in our soul and reigniting our, our, our essence, our soul essentially. Like, we mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. But without God performing that miracle in the person's heart, yep. there's, there's nothing that can be done. We are so lost. For sure. I mean, we are responders, right? God is always the initiator. I mean, God is the one who is even what I call the enlightenment of conviction. Uh, God brings that. And, uh, you know, we get into this whole thing. <laughs> Again, I don't think God just zaps them. They do respond. And yet it's the work of God bringing them to that point. So, yeah, amen, for sure. Okay, uh, let's finish out here, verse 10. Notice uh, all of these things that uh, qualify them as far as how they received uh, the gospel and, and the servants of the gospel. And then he says, uh, to wait and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So um, they were uh, saved. And, and what did they start doing? Well, immediately they started to wait for Jesus uh, to come from heaven. Uh, Notice it doesn't say to wait for the Antichrist who must first come on the scene. No. Uh, First, they they were waiting for Jesus. Uh, That's the whole emphasis here, not the Antichrist. Uh, Three things. Yeah, okay, go ahead. I do. And I'm going to hammer that point in the next few minutes here. But that's right. I do think so. Uh, Three defining marks of true conversion. They turned to God from idols. They turned to serve God as a slave. And they were waiting for Jesus to come. I mean, these are just three characteristics that he's bringing out about this model church here. Uh, To wait for his son from heaven. Where is he coming from? Well, he's coming from heaven, right? That's where he's coming, especially as we think about him coming for the, for the church. The Lord uh, will come in the clouds, and uh, that's, that's what we're expecting as far as the rapture. Uh, whom he raised from the dead, um, and then, of course, then he went back to heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. Clearly, it's Jesus he's talking about, as he emphasizes, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, this is the ultimate deliverance ministry right here, Right? who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, there's been a little discussion here as far as what are we talking about wrath to come. I, I argue very strongly that he's talking about really what we commonly call uh, the rapture. Uh, chapter 4, we have the rapture of the church. And then chapter 5, we have the day of the Lord wrath that follows. And I think that's the right order, the rapture first, and then the wrath, rapture and then wrath. And... Uh, 
It's interesting, we have the very same word in chapter 5 at the end of that discussion, after he talks about, uh, you know, the wrath of the Lord that's coming upon uh, them and not on us. He said, God did not appoint us to wrath. It's the same word we got here in chapter 1, but to obtain salvation, that is deliverance through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same concept he's talking about here in chapter 1, delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, let's see, I got a few slides here. Some uh, take the deliverance here to be from hell, but the context of the whole book would argue otherwise. There's an overarching eschatological, you know, prophetical theme that pervades the entire book. The coming of Christ is mentioned in every chapter of the 89 verses, at least 14 of them deal with this subject. So when I look at the whole context of of what's happening here in this book, uh, they were especially concerned that they had entered into the day of the Lord. Notice the emphasis, uh, chapter 1, to wait for his son from heaven. Chapter 2, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. 3, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Uh, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Chapter 5, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's definitely zeroed in on this, this concept of the coming of the Lord here. Um, when the term, uh, this is uh, Paul Benware, uh, when the term wrath of God is used in a future sense, it usually has the judgments of the tribulation in view. And that's Paul Benware. Uh, Tim LaHaye, the wrath to come can only mean uh, the seven-year tribulation from which believers are delivered or exempt. Of course, that's uh, Tim LaHaye saying that. But uh, let's see here. It's the same word, by the way, uh, when it says delivers us from. It's the, it's the, uh, it's the word ek, um, which we have the same word here in uh, Revelation 3.10. Because you have kept my commandment to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So the, this church at Philadelphia has promised that they will be kept from, ek, out of, literally out of, uh, the hour, from the, from the whole hour, from the whole time uh, period of trial that will come upon the whole world. I think the context of the whole book argues uh, for the rapture. That's really what, you know, he's talking about when you get to chapter 5. Uh, you have the rapture at the end of chapter 4, and then the day of the Lord judgment in chapter 5. And then he says, uh, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. This wrath that he's just described in, in relationship to the day of the Lord, but to obtain deliverance. Um, So, in conclusion, the New Testament consistently presents the rapture as deliverance from God's coming wrath. First the rapture happens, then God's wrath will fall upon the world. That's the order. And the New Testament presents this time of wrath as coming as a thief in the night. The order is deliverance, and on the heels of it, the wrath of God falls. So that's that's my theology. That's, That's what I think. All right. Uh, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Yeah. Um, I think this, I mean, in the context, we know that Paul was with the Thessalonians for very long. Mm-mm. Like right. But he thought that eschatology was important enough to deliver them this truth in that period of time. Yep. Like it wasn't just gospel, gospel, gospel. Mm-hmm.
Right. It's close on at that point, but Paul clearly thought it would be cr- critical. Right. Otherwise, he would, in the very short time he was with them, he decided that this was important enough to share with them. Amen. And follow up on it here, too. You know, even in his, his first letter, really, this is the main theme of, of the letter. It, it is a main theme here. And even from the very beginning, uh, he's talking about that they were saved. They turned to God from idols to wait, to wait for his son from heaven. I mean, they didn't say, well, you know, somewhere into your maturity, you're going to start waiting. No, they, they were right there from the very get-go of their conversion. So this uh, really emphasizes the imminence, what we call the imminence of the coming of Christ, that it could happen at any time. They were waiting. You say, well, that, they were very naive. We no longer have to wait. <laughs> I think we should be waiting just as imminent, just as they were, just with the same mindset. Yeah, Vince? Yeah, I was thinking along those lines a couple of things. Like, it's, you know, when these people are, are preaching the word, evangelizing, there's zombies everywhere, right? But they're undergoing persecution. And mm-hmm. when a person is undergoing persecution, you look for a brighter future. Yes. Right. Like, we don't, don't come, we're enjoying this too much right now. You know, it's kind of like Paul writes in Titus 2.13, right? Looking for the blessed hope. And, and hope is the idea of a future expectation that we are desiring. And if you're under persecution, that really is a, a, a vibrant hope, right? I hope he comes. <laughs> Even so, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, amen. Yep. No question. No question. Uh, to die is gain. It is much better than anything here for sure. And, uh, you know, I don't want persecution, right? I don't want my grandkids to have to go through persecution, you know. But God is sovereign. And uh, if it comes, he will use it for his glory. But, you know, n- none of us being human, we don't want to go that way. But sometimes it might be for the greater good of, of the body of Christ even. You know, we're living in a post-Christian era right now where we are the definite minority, especially if you have a certain, you know, pigment. <laughs> I mean, we're just not in the politically correct category right now. And we see, you know, so Edward Ed, kind of chafe against this sometimes. But, you know, God is sovereign and he's able to use whatever we're going through. All right, very good. Uh, you know, I've said this. Uh, I've said this, and I probably shouldn't say it too much because. But my ritual, if you want to call it that, in the morning is when I get up. I've got three bay windows, and I'll open up the window and, I, and I'll say, "Perhaps today." And I'll quote. Uh, you know, there's three major rapture texts in in the New Testament, right? Where's the first one found? Going in chronological order, or, or in the in the order of the New Testament, John 14, right? I will come again and receive you to myself. So uh, let not your heart be troubled. 
I'll come again. I'll, I'll quote the essay perhaps today. Just to myself. I'm not shouting out loud. Janie's still sleeping after all. I open the middle, the next uh, bay window, and I'll say perhaps today, and, and I'll quote from, what's the next place? No, before that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, perhaps we shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed. Perhaps today, you know. And I often think about my parents who have gone on to be with the Lord when I, when I say that. And then I'll open that third one. And where, where is that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Perhaps today the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of our archangel. I, I always thought it would be really cool if I said that one day and it happened. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of them does. <laughs> the last one actually does. <laughs> but, you know, we know at the second coming, we definitely want to look east, right? Because he's coming to the Mount of Olives. When he's coming in the clouds, I, you, know, I, you know, is it going to be over Jerusalem? I don't know. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Looking in the wrong direction. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, for, uh, John 14, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 through 58. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. Yeah, that's good. All right, any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Praise the Lord for this. These guys were, you know, they were saved to wait for his son from heaven. You know, I think it's always been uh, the church should be waiting. We should be watching. And and it's true all down through the ages. We've hoped that Christ is going to come in our lifetime. And he may. He's going to come sometime. He has to come sometime. (laughs) Might as well be in my lifetime, right? <laughs> well, we just don't know. Yeah. Yep. Right. Ready. Watching and ready. Yeah, amen. Amen. Well, very good. Thanks for your input tonight. Great, great uh, input. Uh, let's share uh, some prayer requests here. If you have 